I stood in the church hallway weeping at what I held in my hands. Christy and I, seven years ago, had begun the adoption process to bring home two boys from Ethiopia, and the cost was overwhelming. We needed $30,000 to bring home our two sons. And at that time, and in that season of life, as we're trying to make it as a young couple with not a lot of money and trying to work our way through seminary, it was just an insurmountable mountain that we thought only God is going to be able to provide for this. Well, there was a young family in our church that approached me, and they weren't wealthy by any means, and they walked up to me one Sunday, and they handed me a check, and they said this, my grandfather just passed away, and so instead of buying a new car for us, we want to help you with your adoption. We believe in what you're doing. And so this is a gift just to say we love you and we're behind you. And I opened what was in my hand and it was a check for $20,000. And I stood there weeping. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes God's people do crazy things. You see, the generosity of God, of what he has provided for us in the gospel through his son, it motivates, it drives generosity. And generosity in the heart of the people of God leads to a movement of the gospel that changes the world. You see, this is the point that the Apostle Paul is making in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The Corinthian church that Paul planted on his second missionary journey turned out to be a labor of love for him because this church had some serious issues. We see back in this first letter that he wrote of 1 Corinthians that this was a church that had factions, it had cliques and divisions. Some were saying, well, I follow Cephas, and others were saying, well, I follow Apollos, and others were saying, well, I follow Paul, and then there were others who were super spiritual and said, well, I follow Jesus. See, these different groups breaking out in this church and these different cliques in which people are warring against one another. We see people taking one another to court and suing one another as believers. They were unclear about what marriage would look like as marriages were falling apart within the local church. You had some people who were getting drunk on the wine at the Lord's Supper. You had an un, uh, people who were unclear, or didn't have a conviction in their hearts in regards to the resurrection. And so Paul gives all of 1 Corinthians 15 to talking about the resurrection of Jesus and why it matters. We see people who are boasting in their spiritual gifts, thinking that they're better than everyone else. You even have one individual in this church who's living in a sexually immoral relationship with his stepmother, and he's bragging about it. This is a church with serious issues. You see, the church, instead of going out into the world to have impact, the world was coming into the church and having impact. And yet, even with all of these issues in the Corinthian church, and all of the issues that come with every church since Acts chapter 2, the truth remains, 
Jesus loves his bride, the church. He loves her. He loves us. And you see, the church isn't perfect. It's being perfected. And there's coming a day in which we will be perfect at the final resurrection. Well, located in this city of Corinth, this was a Roman-controlled trading port on the Mediterranean Sea. The population of the city is about the same as Shelby County. About 200,000 people lived there in this city. It was wealthy, full of many Roman idols that they would gather and they would worship. And the city was in desperate need of healthy churches that would preach the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, after sending 1 Corinthians to the church and sending that letter on to these people, Paul got the bad news that false apostles had crept into the church. These Judaizers came to Corinth and they were changing the gospel. They were adding Jewish customs and works to the gospel. And they were undermining what was truly passed on to us through the apostles. And they were discrediting Paul's authority. So Paul left his work in Ephesus to go right the ship in Corinth. But his visit did not go well. And so he leaves Corinth and then he writes them a severe letter. A letter of tears is what it's often referred to. And then he waited to see how they would respond. In the meantime, Paul kept his hand to the plow. He kept preaching the gospel and making disciples and planting churches and moving the gospel forward. He went towards Macedonia, which is above Greece, north of where Corinth was located. And as he gets there, he meets up with Titus, who brings him the good news that the Corinthian church had repented. Paul then wrote this letter in our laps right now of 2 Corinthians to push back against the false teachers who are still in the church. And he's also writing to let them know, I'm going to come see you soon and I want you to prepare an offering because I'm going to take this money to the believers in Jerusalem who are poor. They're being persecuted for their faith in Jesus and I'm going to take these resources that you provide and I'm going to take them to the church in Jerusalem. And so in 2 Corinthians 9 verses 1 through 5, Paul is commending the church for its generosity. With all of the issues in this church, and this church was messed up, this church had a culture of generosity. They were in a wealthy city, and they realized what Christ had done for them, and so they were very generous with their resources, and they leveraged what God had provided for the good of the kingdom. Then starting in verse 6, Paul outlines what gospel-driven generosity looks like. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 6. Paul says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ motivates Christ's followers to do things that do not make sense to the rest of the world. Notice here in the text what gospel-driven generosity looks like. The first is this. Gospel-driven generosity means that you plant generously. Look at verse 6. Paul begins verse 6 with, the point is this. 
He's saying, this is important. Don't miss this. Jesus would often preface a really big truth with, truly, truly, I say to you. He's saying, listen, I'm about to give you a truth. I want you to pick it up and don't miss it. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, lean in. I want to cut to the chase here. Verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You see, the Apostle Paul here in verse 6 is using agricultural terminology. And he's using it in the form of poetry. Here in verse 6, we have what's called parallelism. We see a poetic, simple, memorable phrase in which he's driving home what generosity looks like in this simple phrase. But this is not the only time that Paul has used agriculture in a language to try and communicate truth. In Galatians chapter 6, he says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Now, most of us in this room do not drive a John Deere for a living. So this agricultural language is not as familiar to us. But for these Corinthians believers, this made complete sense. And the point that Paul is driving home is that if a planter sows seeds sparingly, he will reap a weak crop. But if a planter sows generously, he will reap generously. Compare two farmers. One farmer carefully, slowly, methodically puts seed in the ground. But he's being very stingy. The second farmer is like a a bustling farmer who is grinning and he is marching across the earth, digging his hand into the seed bag and he is casting out the seed as far as it'll go. And the point that Paul's driving home is, which farmer is going to reap the most? And he's saying, it's the one who sows bountifully. The one who is generous. The one who gives away freely. The question is, which one are you? When it comes to generosity, are you more stingy? Are you seeking to keep things to yourself, saying, you know what, I need to keep this for me, and I'm not going to give very much? Or do you want to be like that farmer who grins and whistles and is celebrating God's bounty, and he gives generously? You see, here in the text, Paul is driving home this point of what gospel-driven generosity looks like. And he's saying, listen, the stingy farmer gets little return on his investment. If you invest little, you get little. It's the same and true in relationships. In your relationships with those around you, whether it's a spouse or grandchildren, whomever it is, if you don't spend time and don't give emotional energy, you're not going to get much back. It's going to be a weak relationship. But if you sow lots of energy and lots of time and you invest your heart into people, you're going to reap a very beautiful, rich, bountiful relationship. If you sow little effort into your studies as a student, don't be surprised that when test time comes, you're going to reap sparingly. 
you're going to get bad grades. But the opposite is true. If you sow, if you invest, if you pour your life into your studies, it's not just true in relationships or in, or in, uh, in, in studies, but it's also true in regards to your body. If you, if you sow bad food and you're lazy and don't work out, you're going to reap an unhealthy body. But if you sow good food and you exercise and take good care of yourself, it's amazing how you will reap a bountiful effort. Well, that's what Paul's driving home when it comes to finances. Is which farmer do you want to be? The one who gets a little return on investment or the one who gets a big return on investment? James was a successful businessman from early on in his life. He worked hard, he thought outside the box, and over time, he gained a significant amount of wealth. When the Great, um, Great Depression hit, he lost the majority of his wealth. God humbled him. And the Lord used that season in his life to draw him to himself. From that point, James made the decision, I am going to be generous with anything that God gives to me. Up to the point where at a certain point in his life, he worked his way up to it, 90% of his resources he gave away and 10% he kept to himself. That man is J.C. Penny. A man who said, I'm going to be generous. Now you're sitting here thinking, well, Kenneth, if I had $240 million a year, I'd be generous too, right? <laughs> right? Like, that would be pretty amazing. But what's interesting is he made the decision while he was still poor. And see, it's not primarily about the dollar amount. It's primarily about what's in your heart. You and I will probably never have wealth of a man like that, but when the gospel transforms your heart, you can't help but be open-handed with what God has provided. Why? Because generosity begins at the cross. God gave us his best. He was generous by giving us his one and only son, Jesus, who bled and died on the cross for your sin, so that the moment that you believed upon Jesus, the moment you gave your life to Christ, his grace overwhelmed your heart. And when your heart rightly sees what God has done for you in the gospel, you are then motivated to be generous in every area of your life. You see, ultimately, Generosity is not tied to a number. Generosity is tied to your heart. This is why it's impossible to plant generously and be an Ebenezer Scrooge. Can't happen. You see, gospel-driven generosity means that you plant generously. Well, Kenneth, how can I know if I am planting generously? Here's the answer. Follow your money trail. When you follow where you spend your dollars, you will see what you love. Because Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So gospel-driven generosity means that you plant generously. But number two, I want you to say gospel-driven generosity means that you plan accordingly. Verse 7 Paul says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. As Paul is calling the Corinthian church to generosity, he's not calling for erratic or compulsive giving. 
You see, he's connecting giving to a pre-planned decision from the heart. Okay, it's, it's purpose in the heart, meaning it's voluntary and it's intentional. This is where planning and preparation play a role in godly stewardship. As God has called us to be stewards, we are managers of his money, we are to exercise dominion over how we spend every dollar. In Genesis chapter 2, God gave Adam the responsibility of exercising dominion over creation. Genesis 2.15 says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. You see, man was created by God to exercise dominion, to rule over creation. So much so that God indeed gave Adam the responsibility of naming the animals. That is a position of authority in which he is exercising dominion over creation. Well, as image bearers, as those who are made by God to reflect God and what he is like, you and I fulfill that Genesis 2 mandate of exercising dominion over creation by naming every dollar that comes under our authority. You and I get to leverage not only our resources, but we get to plan. We get to say to every dollar that God entrusts to us, we're going to say, this is where you're going to go. This is how you're going to be used. And you steward your resources faithfully. And this requires planning. It requires preparation. See, one of the ways you can do this is by having a budget in which you organize your, fa- your finances and you give every dollar a name. One of the ways that we as a church want to come alongside you in 2018 is to provide financial planning and training for all Westwood families starting in January. Now, on Wednesday nights, we're going to provide a course that's going to equip you so that you can be more faithful and more diligent with your resources and so you're saying, well, Kenneth, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed going to a class that, like that. Listen, it's not embarrassing. Just because you come doesn't mean that you're, you don't have your act together. In fact, it's quite the opposite. This is an opportunity for all of us to get better. And so if you are one of learning how you can get better at managing your resources or find new creative ways to bring in income, we want to provide a way to help you do that. Because the healthier your family is financially, the more faithful you can leverage your resources for maximum kingdom impact. But it requires planning accordingly. Planning ahead. Saying in, deciding in your heart, this is what we're going to give. I also want you to see number three. The gospel-driven generosity means that you give cheerfully. Verse seven, Paul says, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, God is desiring for us to be joyful in our giving. It's a joy. It's not a burden. It's not a have to. This is a get to. We get to join God and financially undergirding the work of what he's doing in the world. This is why Paul tells the Corinthian church that giving should not be done with reluctance or under compulsion, meaning we don't give because we have to. We don't give due to legalistic rules or regulations. Our attitude should be, yes, I want to give. I get to be a part of advancing mission, of advancing the gospel, undergirding the work of the church so that the name of Jesus can be high and exalted both locally and globally. You see, that word for cheerful is the same word where we get the word hilarious. 
It's a giving without restraint. It's just a hilarity. It's just a joy that overflows out of your heart because of Jesus. You see, there's, there's no amount of money or wealth that could pay for this truth right here. God loves you. He loves you. But what's amazing is not only that God loves you, but also he shows special favor, special love, verse 7, for those who give cheerfully. And it's not a have to. It is a joy to financially invest in the sake of the gospel. And here we see gospel-driven generosity is a motive of the heart in which you give out of the overflow of what God has done for you in Christ. Which means giving shouldn't be with sorrow or with grief or remorse or regrets. There's no compulsion. There's no legalistic external pressures. Giving is an opportunity for joy-filled worship in which you say to the Lord, I love you. Thank you. I praise you, Jesus, for what you have done for me because God loves hilarious, joy-filled givers. Fourthly, we see the gospel-driven generosity means that you watch God provide. Verse eight, Paul says, and God is able. Three great words to underline in your Bible. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good, good work. Paul is pointing to the ability of God to make his grace abound to those who trust him. And in turn, he will provide you with what you need so that you may continue to do good works for his glory. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Namely, what you have sown, you will reap back. Don't miss that truth so that you can generously give all the more. Paul's saying that if you show yourself faithful in leveraging your resources for kingdom advancement, God will provide for you in such a way that you can continue to be a bigger blessing to others. So let's say it another way. If you plant generously, if you plan accordingly, and if you give cheerfully, you will always have what you need. Now notice, you will not always have what you want. That's something that we get very confused in our culture. Want versus need. It's a conversation I have with my children frequently. That's a want, not a need, bro. So let's be clear here, all right? Prosperity preachers falsely teach that when you fill their pockets with money, God will bless you with such wealth that you can go buy a bigger house, nicer cars, and more bling for your ring. But that word of faith, name it and claim it, heretical teaching is not what the Bible teaches. When you see these charlatans on TV, turn it off. When you see their book in the store, do not buy it. Prosperity theology sends people to hell comfortable and looking good. You see, this is why accuracy matters when it comes to the scriptures. Because worldly wisdom says you prosper by grabbing wealth. God's wisdom says you prosper by giving it away. 
And yet, God loves to display his power by providing for his children. Notice in the text, God's power is on display, verse 8, as he is able to make all grace abound to you and provide all that you need. John MacArthur said it like this, the more one gives, the more God gives back in return. God loves to put his power on display by providing for his children who step out in faith and trust him. I got permission this week to share this story with you of a message I received from a Westwood member who is currently going through a very painful trial. It's in a difficult season, and this person, they sent me an encouraging message, and it said this. A few weeks ago, I was sitting in church about to write out my tithe check. Finances have been less than ideal, and part of me started thinking that surely God would understand if I skipped my tithe for just the one month. But then I felt conviction over that, and as I sealed the envelope, I prayed, you tell me in your word, God, to test you. And I dropped it in the offering plate. Watch this. The next day at work, our accounting manager called me. He told me they had made some errors in some deductions from my paycheck over the last couple of months that no one had really noticed. He wanted to let me know that my next check would have a refund. Can you guess what that amount was? Not just the amount of the tithe, but double that. They then said this, test him and know he is good and he is faithful. For thousands of years, we have in our laps the Bible in which we see God has been faithful. We have thousands of years of church history in which we see God has been faithful. And y'all, God is faithful. He will provide. I've seen it over and over in my life. I've seen it in the life of other believers in which they step out in faith and God shows up and does what only he can do. That is what God does. And when you become a conduit through which God can bless people for the spread of the gospel and the glory of his name, he will, verse eight, make all grace abound to you so that having all that you need in all things and in all times, you can serve people with good works. So the question I have for you is this. Has the gospel driven you to generosity? Are you generous with what God has provided for you? Last week, we as a church voted on a $3.12 million budget in which this new budget, it's, it's a huge increase from this year to next year, $300,000 increase. Now, if all families gave an additional $500, that covers that. But here's the deal. I think we can do more than that. I'm calling our church to go for four. I want to challenge us as a church that in 2018, we give $4 million to the general budget. And it all just starts with tithing. If every member, every family tithed, that would help us reach our goal. Every dollar given above the 3.12 goes directly on principle to retire the debt. We've got to get this burden off our shoulders. In your seat backs, there are cards there that are a go for four commitment card. It's not anything you turn in. It's something you can take home with you. It's a commitment between you and the Lord. What you're saying, Lord, I'm going to give generously in 2018. You, you can keep it in your Bible as a reminder. You can put it on your mirror as you brush your teeth, whatever it is. But this is a way for you to say, Lord, I want to invest. 
I want to be generous with the resources you have provided. I want to be more faithful. So that on that day, when I stand before you and give an account, there is a reward for faithfulness. You see, because in the gospel, our generous God, he drives us towards generosity. Our motivation is 2 Corinthians 8. In verse 9, in which Paul says, He who was rich became poor, so that we who are poor might become rich. Jesus left the riches, he left the glory of heaven, and he came to earth, not to be born in a castle, but in a stinky stable. Not to a family of wealth and prestige, but to a poor virgin girl. And he humbles himself and he comes to earth and he takes on flesh and he goes to the cross. And because he humbled himself, because he became poor, you and I become rich in him. That's the hope of the gospel. And that is where generosity begins.